We're using as a text this year, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 7. We're using this text the whole year. I've already read this verse and several others in their entirety. I've read, read them from the King James, and now I've also read them from the message by Eugene Peterson, which is a translation in conversational English. I don't even need to read all the verses now. I just want to read the first two words. Seize life. Tell somebody, seize life. Come on, look at somebody and mean it when you say it. Seize life. Don't you let it go. You hold on to it. You grab a hold of it. Don't wait for it to grab you. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, and oh, isn't our high priest great? I heard two or three amens. I want to ask again. Don't we have a great high priest? And he's passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've already pointed out that this, these verses contain, in their translation, what is called a double negative. You're not supposed to use double negatives. The double negatives are we have not an high priest who cannot. What we would say is we have a high priest who can be touched. But notice who this book is written to. See that? Hebrews. It's written to Jewish believers. And one of the common mechanisms in their language was they would employ purposefully, deliberately, though it's considered to be poor grammar in our language, they would purposefully employ double negatives for the point or for the purpose of calling attention to something and emphasizing it, raising it out of the rest of the text, in other words. So their way of italicizing it was to use double negatives. What they're saying is they're screaming our high priest is different. He can be touched. And this, of course, as I've already pointed out, goes back to the fact that you could not, if you had a need, touch the high priest in the Old Testament because your need might contaminate him and render him unfit to perform his priestly duties. His resources were limited. He only had so much in the tank. And if you had a need and you touched him and defiled him ceremonially, it shut him down for not just a day, but for several days. He had to go through the ritual of cleansing to be ceremonially pure again to perform his priestly function. And so the way they dealt with that was you just don't touch the high priest. And the writer is here saying, we don't have one like that. Ours has an inexhaustible supply of resources that are not diminished no matter who touches him so we can come boldly and touch the throne. And to emphasize that, I pointed out to you that Jesus was on his way to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead when the woman with the issue of blood, which was one of those things that would have defiled the high priest in the Old Testament. She touched the hem of his garment, and Jesus stopped and said, my virtue went out of me. That would have shut the high priest of Israel down for several days. Jesus kept right on walking, went to Jairus' house, and raised Jairus' daughter from the dead anyway. Why? Because while, whereas our high priest is limited in his capacity, or rather their high priest was limited in his capacity, 
Ours is infinite in his resources. Every single one of us can come whatever our need is. And ever when we get through having our need met, guess what? The mark hasn't gone down not even a half inch on the reservoir. Father, I pray today that you will speak a word that will enlighten us and illuminate our hearts. Challenge us and change us. We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Passion. Passion. Passion for God and the things in life that really matter. That's what I'm talking about in this season. Passion. For God and for the things that really matter. As I've already pointed out, passion makes a difference in just existing in life or really doing something with your life. Passion motivates you, propels you, compels you, thrusts you to do more, causes you to go beyond where anybody else will go. Joke, okay? Joke. Texas all men, rich beyond dreams, has one daughter, raises her by giving her everything that he wants. She reaches the age when she wants to get married, and is she a knockout? She's the most beautiful girl in the city. And so the husband is naturally, or the, rather the, the father is naturally concerned, wants to make sure her husband has the drive that he needs, the zeal to make the most out of his life. After all, his daughter's accustomed to a lot. And so he sends out word to all of the eligible bachelors in town, I want you to come to my place, my ranch, on Saturday, such and such a time, and we're going to determine who is the most eligible candidate to become my son-in-law and get married to my daughter. And so word gets out at the appointed time, I'm telling you every eligible bachelor from anywhere around for miles is there. And the wealthy tycoon says, y'all follow me to my, my pool side. And they go to the pool and he says, y'all see my pool here. He said, this is what I'm going to do to determine who gets to be my son-in-law and marry my beautiful daughter. He said, first, I want you to know that she's the only heiress to my vast fortune and whoever marries her will be marrying into money. Secondly, Right off the bat, I'm going to deposit $15 million into my son-in-law's bank account so that he can take care of my daughter the way she's accustomed to being taken care of, and I'm going to give him a mansion and two luxury automobiles, plus I'm going to make him vice president of all of my, my company businesses. He said, what you have to do is swim across my pond, my pool, one side to the other. I mean, the guys start pulling off their shoes and taking off their coats, and just about that time, a helicopter flies over. Whop, 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 whop. And the cargo doors open, and out dumps a load of alligators and poisonous snakes. And all the guys stood putting their shoes back on, their shirts back on, grumbling. Huh. Won't do any good to compete in this. Even if, you know, you compete, you got to live to be able to enjoy the prize, right? And all of a sudden, there's a loud scream, and a big splash, and everybody turns, and one guy is frantically thrashing his way across the, the pool, turning the water into white water. I mean, he's moving. 
knocking snakes out of the way, wrestling with alligators. He comes to the other side, jumps up like a submarine launch missile right out of the pool. Boom! Lands on the side of the pool. And the Texas oil tycoon is suitably impressed and says, I am astonished. I didn't think anybody had it in them. Said, you amaze me. All these other guys are putting their shirts and shoes back on. And here it is. You jump right in the middle of this thing, swim across these poisonous, venomous snakes, these hungry alligators. You deserve my daughter's hand in marriage. I want to shake your hand. And by the way, I'm a man of my word. Everything I promised you is true. Tomorrow at this time, you'll have $15 million in your bank account, the title deed to a mansion, and, and the, the titles to two luxury automobiles. You and my daughter will get married next Saturday. And by tomorrow at this time, you'll be the vice president of all of my companies. He said, I honestly don't see how you did it. And he said, I'm so impressed. I want you to turn around and tell all of these other wimps how you managed to be so brave in the face of such a challenge. And the guy said, brave? I wasn't brave. I don't have anything to say to him about being brave. Only one I want to say something to is, who's that fool who pushed me in the pool? That's what I'm... That's the one I want to have a talk with. He and I are going to have a talk, man to man, you know? Yeah. It's amazing what you can do when you're pushed, right? And passion pushes you beyond any limit you would be willing to go to under any other circumstances. But a couple of things I need to stress right up front. Number one, don't think that I'm giving you cut, dried, trite, little, cute, little formulas that you can use just at any time. You just pull it out of the, the recipe box, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. What was pastor teaching the other day? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do this, my time of need, this. And then God's going to show up and sit around waiting for God to show up. The things that I want to talk to you about are things that work for people who have passion for God. But they don't necessarily work for people who don't. You might get a breakthrough, you might not. But I can assure you that if you have great passion for God and God is your primary passion and you make him what your life is all about, that these things that I'm telling you work, and baby, do they work. They really do. Amen. It's true what Jesus said when he said that if we put God and his kingdom first in our lives and seek him first, that all these other things we get concerned about while living life will be added to us automatically. The problem, as I see it, is this. Most of us spend all of our lives worried about these other things and then seek God when we really have a need. And the truth is we ought to have passion for God every single day. And if we do, he just automatically shows up and takes care of a lot of these things because of the passion we have for him. Paul seemed to be dismayed that any believer would not want to live life fully by taking advantage of such a head start. Because when you have God, 
when you're passionate for God, it gives you access to such resources that others don't have that you literally get a huge head start above every, everyone else. Paul seemed to be dismayed that believers would ever allow anything to keep them from experiencing life lived out with that kind of a head start. 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. This is that text where the Apostle Paul is complaining and chiding the church at Corinth because they've come cornal, right? And they've become concerned about so many things in their, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, which is Peter, I'm of Apollos. And their passion for God has now been directed toward particular ministries. And they're more passionate about who's my favorite preacher than they are who's the God of all these preachers and always saints. And notice what Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 3, you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal? And watch this. And notice the last four words of this verse. Because I've heard lots of sermons preached about schisms, divisions, lack of unity in the church, and they quoted these verses, but I've yet to hear in my entire life among the thousands of sermons I've heard one sermon be preached on the last four words in this verse. He said, are you not carnal? And these four words are behaving like mere men. Did you hear that? Paul said, why are you going to go back to acting like ordinary men again? Because when you have passion for God, you're not just living life on the same plane as everybody else. You're living life empowered by God and God is there where you are active in your life. Paul is simply suggesting that the supernatural should be a part of our lives every single day. And why would we ever allow ourselves to be reduced to a circumstance where the supernatural is what we experience only when we get in a bind every once in a while. That if we maintain passion for God the way we should, we're not living like mere men or women. That's what Paul is, is hinting. And so I want to emphasize right up front that maybe one of the reasons that God would not allow me to teach this, though I did this study years ago, is because I know our tendency, my tendency, yours, to want to reduce God as complex and infinite as he is to some mere little formula, and he becomes our God in the box. I mentioned that last Sunday, and I have to mention it again because I'm going to start dealing with some of these and giving you some of these, these things that, that can turn your life around. But the first thing I need to emphasize is that always your passion should be more for God than even for a breakthrough. Oh, come on, help me out here. Your passion should be more about him than it is anything else in your life. And as long as you keep that there, as long as you keep that balance correct, that seek him first, then all this other stuff is going to be added automatically. And that's what I seem to find in Scripture. But when I think of this tendency to reduce God to a formula, you know who I go to? Back to a guy called Naaman. Naaman, in the Old Testament, First Kings, or, or Second Kings it was. In Second Kings, there's this guy who was a general in the Syrian army. And he wasn't just a general, he was the general. The problem with that is, is that 
They call him in the scripture, he's called the captain of the Syrian army. But you need to understand that there are military positions and their ranks of officers were different in that day than in ours. Today, because all of us have been through two Gulf Wars, right, and everything else that goes along with all of that, most of us know military rankings pretty well. A captain is not the highest position on the totem pole, trust me. Generals are above him, way above. And what we need to understand is that when the Bible identifies Naaman as a captain in in the Syrian army, it did not mean that he had generals over him that he answered to. He was the general. He was the four-star general. He was like the head of the Pentagon. You go on and read that when Naaman's king, the king of Syria, went to his temple to worship his pagan gods, his idols, it said he leaned upon the hand of Naaman. And so you have this elderly king who's getting feeble and he steadies himself by bracing against the arm of Naaman who's strong and powerful. Naaman is not only the general over the Syrian army, but he is a brilliant man. He understands strategy. He's powerful. He moves in the upper echelons of society. He is the advisor to the king and the king's closest confidant. Now, let's put this in context. Israel and Syria, as I mentioned last week, were intense rivals. Syria was the arch rival and enemy to Israel. And as long as Israel served God and had passion for God, guess who defeated Syria? Israel did. But when Israel became passionate about all this other stuff and left God alone, then Syria would dominate and defeat Israel. And they were the antithesis of everything that Israel stood for. They were idol worshipers. They were polytheistic. They were pagans. They were cruel. And Israel was monotheistic and worshiped the one true Jehovah God. And now watch what happens. This guy who is among the most highly placed and the entire Syrian governmental and military structure gets leprosy. Uh Uh-oh. He's going to die. He has leprosy. And he is perplexed to show you just how big an enemy Israel and Syria were. He has in his house a little girl that they had captured when they had carried out excursions and invasions in Israel. And their armies had brought back captives. One of them was a little girl that has become a young lady now and she is a slave in Naaman's home and she hears that the mighty general has been smitten with leprosy and this is what she says to her companions and fellow workers and slaves in the kitchen or wherever, house cleaning crew, I don't know. She says, wish that we had a prophet here like we have back home. Wish we had a prophet like Elisha because he would heal my master of his leprosy. And boy, when she says that, somebody says, you got a guy back home that can heal leprosy? Oh, yeah. We got a prophet that can heal leprosy. And they go run into Naaman and they tell him, you you know you got a servant girl who says there's a prophet back in Samaria that can heal leprosy? And Naaman says, what? And they call that little girl in and she says, oh, yeah. She said, 
We don't serve your pagan gods. We serve Jehovah God. And he's the real deal. No hype needed. He's the real thing. And you know what Naaman does? Naaman says, get my chariot ready and call a squadron of soldiers. And he goes with a troop of soldiers. And they go down to Samaria and tell the king, we're looking for this prophet guy. What's his name? Oh, yeah, Elisha. Where does he live? And the, prophet, and the king says, he lives over there. I don't want anything to do with these guys here, you know. They're our enemies. And he's actually afraid. He says, look, the king of Syria is actually trying to pick a fight with me. That's what he says in the Bible. He sent his top general who's dying of leprosy over here. And if I don't heal him, then he's going to come and invade us again. I know it's good. He's just picking a fight. And so he directs him down to Elisha's house saying, man, hail Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners down the yard. You know, I mean, he's praying. He wants to, God, if you ever healed anybody of leprosy, please heal this guy. I don't have to fight. And the prophet is sitting in his lazy boy recliner watching the game on Sunday afternoon, drinking, drinking Coke Zero. And Naaman shows up. And he's expecting all of the proper protocols to be followed. And the prophet doesn't even get out of his recliner. He just says to one of his servants, go tell Naaman to go wash in the pool of, or rather in, in the river of Jordan seven times. And they go out and said, the prophet, he's, he's watching a game. Sorry, he can't be disturbed right now. He said, go wash in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. And it starts in Naaman's feet and works his way up through his ankles and his legs and fee-fi-fo-fum. He is furious. He is in a rage. And he snaps those chariot reins and off that chariot goes and his soldiers are with him. And he's still thinking, I may kill this prophet before the day's over. Because don't we have cleaner rivers right here in, Dam in Damascus? Why do I have to go wash in muddy Jordan? And while he's going, the little servant girl that they brought with them to help identify the right place to go to find the prophet, she speaks up and says, Master, if the prophet had asked you to do some mighty thing, wouldn't you have done it? If he had asked you to scale Mount Everest, climb the Matterhorn, walk across the burning desert, fight an army by yourself, wouldn't you have done it? And this man who is brilliant and a strategist stops and says, you're absolutely right, I would have. And she said, all he asked you to do was go dip in Jordan seven times. And the man is humbled because he realizes his emotions have overruled his better judgment. And he says, you're absolutely right. And he goes and dips in Jordan's river seven times and comes up. And he is completely healed of his leprosy. Somebody in the building say Amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, we have a God who can heal anything. Would you do that? Oh, it's no problem for God. No, it isn't. The thing that I want you to notice is that he was a man of great passion, but he almost let his passion get directed to the wrong place. And he wanted to use God as God in the box. 
You know, notice what he says. In fact, in in 2 Kings chapter 5 and 11, but Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. That's what he's expecting. Notice what he said. He will come out and call on the name of the Lord his God. Not the Lord our God. He had no intention of ever making God his Lord. He was perfectly content to go ahead and live his life He just had passion for healing, but didn't have passion for God. Now, here's where I'm preaching from in this series. If your passion is for God, God shows up and takes care of everything else that exists at the same time. Oh, I need somebody to say amen. Now, watch it, because I want to move on. Because I want to give you extraordinary keys to extraordinary breakthroughs. I look in the Bible, and I've already given you several principles, but I'll mention one again, that if you want God to act extraordinarily, then don't you just act ordinary. Because extraordinary acts of devotion move God to do extraordinary things. Come on, somebody in the building needs to shout hallelujah. We want God to show up and do extraordinary things while we just keep acting ordinary. And that was Naaman's problem. Now, he ended up getting a miracle that day because God is so gracious and kind that he just, well, he'd just help anybody. Amen. But if you want to live in that dimension Paul talked about that is above the level of just being mere men, if you want the supernatural activity of God to be present in your life every day in a way that defies explanation with God doing things that blow your mind and everybody else's, if you want to live at that level of empowerment where breakthrough after breakthrough comes, make God your greatest passion. Come on and somebody say amen. And quickly, before I move on to the point I want to make, I want to also point out that contrary to what some people believe, if you make God your greatest passion, it doesn't mean you'll never have a problem. You need to know that resistance is an important part of your spiritual development. That's good preaching, Pastor. Keep it up. Thank you. I believe I will. Amen. You don't say amen, I can say it to myself. Amen. We always look for the path of least resistance and you need to understand without resistance you cannot grow. This is the way we lose weight. I'm going on the Krispy Kreme diet. I'm eating nothing but Krispy Kremes. From the time I wake up till I go to bed and I'm going to lose 35 pounds in the next two weeks. Yeah, really. Try it and let me know how it works for you. Okay? And I get to watch TV one day a week, one, one evening a week. That's Saturday evening usually. And I sit there and I'm scrolling through the channels and I see the same commercials over and over about how you can do this diet for three to five minutes a day. Seriously. 
this exercise three to five minutes a day and you will develop a six pack. No, you won't. You'll develop a keg. That's what you're going to develop. If you have a six pack, it's going to be hidden so deep, you'll never see it in your lifetime. Not with three to five minutes. It don't work that way. You have to have resistance. Here's what I'm trying to say. Even going to the gym, you don't build muscle mass without resistance training. And do you know how you become a better manager of finance? Resistance to finance. You know how you become better in your relationships, your marriage, your home, your children? It's when trouble arises. But because you've made God your passion, when he shows up, all of the other stuff gets out of the way automatically. And when you keep your attention and your focus on him, he brings what nothing else could bring into that situation. Let's look at a few examples. I'm only going to get to one today and then i got to close. But I think of David. David moved God with extraordinary spiritual hunger. Extraordinary spiritual hunger. Everybody's hungry. Everybody's born hungry for God. Most of us spend so much time stuffing other stuff in there. It's like eating junk food when your body's really craving things that is nutritious, things that are healthy. You eat junk food, you'll lose your appetite. You know, you won't be hungry, but your body still needs the other. Amen. And most of us spend our lifetimes either not recognizing that we are all created with spiritual hunger or trying to stuff a bunch of other stuff in there that causes our appetite for God to be diminished and go away. Don't for a minute think that David lived in a time of great revival. He didn't. Nations go through seasons of revival. Do you know that even certain groups of people, people groups, ethnicities, and so forth go through seasons of revival? Countries go through seasons of revival. Yes, they do. I believe in this country there are certain elements within our our populace that are more sensitive and hungry to God than some others are. I'm being very serious with you. Come on, help me out. You don't think certain areas have revival and get hungrier at certain seasons than others do? Look at Europe. That's where the Reformation began. Go there now. Not much spiritual hunger. There is not a guarantee that spiritual hunger will exist from, from generation to generation or even from decade to decade. You have to make yourself hungry. And then North America had the great awakening. Then there was the great revival that began in Latin and South America, still ongoing. And then the great revival in Africa, still ongoing. And now one of the greatest areas of spiritual hunger is Asia. Places like China and India, great spiritual hunger there. Different seasons, different people. How do you manage to be hungry when everybody else around you is not in the right season? How do you manage to be hungry when it's not time for your generation or not time for your nation? That's where you and I need to examine what happened with David. Because David grew up in the worst and most inauspicious of circumstances. A little no-name shepherd watching sheep out on a hillside at a time when Israel was not having revival. The era of the judges had come to a conclusion. 
And under the, judge, under the judges, they had been having revival one week, the next week, no. Hot one week, next week, cold. Well, maybe not every week, but it was pretty much that way from year to year. And then Samuel comes along. Eli the prophet's been killed. Ark of the Covenant's been taken. Samuel becomes the priest and prophet to the nation. And they reject even him. And he cries because they ask for a king. They said, we want to be like all these other nations. And he said, God, they're, they're, you know, I'm just trying to serve the people. And God said, don't take it personal. It's not even you they've rejected, Samuel. It's me. They just want to be like everybody else. They want to fit in. They want political correctness. Can I talk to you right now? Why? Because the climate of the area was not conducive to revival. The people were not hungry. And so in one of the worst possible seasons in Israel's life, there was a little shepherd boy sitting out on a hill strumming a harp and making up songs like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And while everybody else is lacking in spiritual hunger, David is causing himself to become more hungry for God. Amen. Which means you don't have to fit into the whatever the level of level of mediocrity is that is present in society during your time. You only get a few minutes on the stage, baby. You're born, then you're going to die. You better grab it while you can. And this is why. Ecclesiastes says, seize life. You're sitting there waiting for life to come seize you. Doesn't work that way. You seize life. Get it by the throat. Don't let it go. Amen. Amen. And David develops hunger for God. Little no-name shepherd. Didn't have the right connections. Forgotten and overlooked even by his own daddy. Samuel comes, directed by God, to Bethlehem to anoint someone to replace Saul. And God sends him to the house of Jesse and he says, bring your sons. And Jesse brings everybody but David. His own daddy overlooked him. Forgot about him. Don't think David got to where he got because he was all that good, all that educated. He didn't have degrees from the right universities. He didn't have the right connections. He didn't have the right hookup. He didn't have the right sponsor, nobody to open a door for him. But what David had is what I ponder in scripture. In my private devotions, I've read it so many times. David had what was called the key of David. And I've often wondered what David's key was. Often wondered. I researched it just as recently as yesterday. I've read rabbinical writings, I've read uh, commentaries, uh, went online, you can Google it. What was the key of David? Almost without exception, nearly everybody says the key of David is the Messiah. The Messiah. The Messiah is the key of David. I disagree with that. First of all, the commonsensical language of the Bible leads me to believe that's an incorrect interpretation and therefore leaves that question unanswered as it is answered by most today. Listen to this. The first time you find the key of phrase, the, the phrase, the key of David used, it's only used two times. It's once in the Old Testament, once in the New. And you'll find the first time in Isaiah 22 and 22. You, know, you, you want to know a way to remember this? Okay, instead of 2020 vision, get 22 vision, 22 vision. Okay? Isaiah 22, 22. 
The key of the house of David will I lay on his shoulder, so he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. Amen. If Jesus is the key of David, this is a messianic verse. And when it says the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder, whose shoulder is that? That Jesus' shoulder. How are you going to lay the key on the shoulder of the key? Are you tracking with what I'm saying right now? Are you following? If Messiah is the key, how are you going to lay the key on his shoulder? The shoulder speaks of government. Now watch this. And it's used again in Revelation 3 and 7 to the angel of church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. Who's the one doing the talking? The one that's walking among the golden candlesticks. That's the Messiah. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. Wait a minute. The one walking here is saying he that has the key of David. If you are the key, how are you going to have the key? Come on, come on, get real with me. You either are the key or you're not the key, one of the two. Which is it? And if you're not the key, you can have it. But if you are the key, how are you going to have the key? Here's what I'm trying to say. Is that the Messiah carries the key of David. What is the key of David? He can open any door for anybody. He can lock any door You've been trying to nail shut but can't get shut. Guess what? Jesus can close it forever, baby. Heart disease, cancer, leukemia. Yeah, Jesus can lock the door shut where you never are bothered with it again as long as you live. Woo, I feel the Holy Ghost in this room right now. Amen. So what is the key of David? You study the life of David, and I have. <laughs> David did things that he never should have done, as I said earlier in this year. <laughs> Among all of the laws that Israel had, the ones who carried the most serious penalty for their violation were the worship laws. You violated worship protocol, you paid big time. Two sons of Aaron offered strange fire. Supposed to take the fire from the brazen altar, put it on the altar of incense. They got fire from somewhere else. God killed them on the spot. King Uzziah put on an ephod, went into the temple and said, I'm going to worship. And they said, you better take that thing off. He said, no, I'm king. I'm God's point man for this nation. I can come in here. They said, oh, yeah, take a look. Leprosy was growing on him right at that moment. He hurried, pulled that ephod off, and fled out of the temple. And that's why he died. You read about him dying in Isaiah 6. In the year King Uzziah died, that's what killed him, his leprosy. Why? Because he violated worship protocol. Belshazzar takes vessels that were dedicated to God that his grandfather stole when he ransacked the temple. And one night in a drunken party, he says, we're going to get really edgy tonight. And he goes further than anybody's ever gone. He says, bring those golden vessels dedicated to God, Jehovah, back there. You know that God they had, the Hebrew God, one we defeated? Bring those vessels. And he poured wine in them and offered it to his gods. And when he lifted it to drink, he saw a hand writing on the wall, meeny, meeny, tickle, euphorcin. Scared him so bad, his knees hit together so hard, his joints came apart. And he died that very night. 
Why? Because you violated worship protocol. In every case, you violate worship protocol. That's serious stuff. Yet David violated worship protocol and God never stopped him not one time. Uzziah gets smitten with leprosy because he puts on an ephod. Guess what David did? David put on an ephod. He was of the tribe of Judah and he danced before the Ark of the Covenant with all of his might and God didn't even seem to mind. On another occasion, David is fleeing from Saul and goes to the temple and eats the showbread. That was a violation of worship protocol. It was lawful only for the priest to eat the showbread. David ate it, and God never laid a finger on him. How did he get by? And then the most egregious of all of the violations was when David reconstructed the tabernacle at Jerusalem. The one piece that he left out was one commanded in Mosaic law to be put in the tabernacle, which was the veil around the Ark of the Covenant. Listen, you didn't get to see the Ark. You didn't. Only one who got to see it was the high priest once a year. And he only got to see it on the day of Yom Kippur and then only for maybe 15 minutes when he carried blood and imported it on the mercy seat. Watch this because I got something to show you. Amen. David purposefully left the veil out, put in its place 285 worshipers in a circle around the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Listen to this. This is the key to it all. David's key. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David, how audacious are you? Some little snot-nosed boy raised on a hillside somewhere taking care of sheep. You're not even of the right tribe. You're going, you want to live in the temple? Listen, David, you're not of the tribe of Levi. You want to see the beauty of the Lord? Listen, to behold the beauty of the Lord? Do you realize the high priest only gets to see that one day out of the year and then only for 15 minutes? And David said, I want to see it. How dare you wish for something like that, David? Don't you know that you don't have the right last name? You don't have the hookups? You don't have the connections? You're a nobody? And David said, all of that may be true, but I got one thing none of these other guys have. I've got hunger. I've got spiritual hunger. And what I believe the scripture refers to when it speaks about the key of David is David got to go places nobody else got to go. Because listen to this. Do you know that when David put up that tabernacle, not only did God not object to leaving out the veil, David went to the house of God every single day and sometimes three times a day and got to behold the Shekinah, the blue flame of fire, the presence of God on the back of the Ark of the Covenant. I'm wrapping this up and I'm closing. But what I'm telling you is if you can get hungry enough and your passion is for God, he will make things happen in your life that nothing else will ever make happen. Come on, somebody give him some praise right now. The key of David. The key of David. The key of David is get so hungry for God that God is attracted and just shows up. Because when he shows up, it goes like this. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. When God shows up, enemies start jumping out of windows. Cancer goes out the front door. Bankruptcy goes out the back door. Hello, somebody. 
bad diagnoses go flying out the door. Why? Because when God shows up, something is about to happen.